0: This is Short Stories Wonderful People Podcast, a production of Adventuresandaudio.net. Hello, you wonderful person. I'm grateful you are here. I'm Robert Crandall. This is the podcast you can get away from it all. No politics and no current events, just good horror story that you can enjoy. On this episode, we have a science fiction story about time travel with little different twists to it. But first, we have a listener nightmare to read. Wow, that was sent in by Levi. It's been a while since we've had a listener nightmare. So uh, if you've had a nightmare or just any unusual thing happen, doesn't have to be a nightmare, send it to myhorribledream at gmail.com. We'd love to hear it. Now here's what Levi sent in. Good evening Mr. Crandall. I've been listening to your short stories podcast for quite some time for over two years now and just wanted to thank you and commend you on what a truly fantastic thing you've done. I've listened to them often keeping me company on night drives, during long deployments underway on the ship I'm finishing up my service on, and still to this day, in quiet evenings I have to myself. I grew up reading these tales, and I'm sure many of your other listeners have as well, but nothing quite beats listening to them on autumnal New England night, or in the eeriness of the eternal day at the bottom of the world, when a heavy fog rolls in, and icebergs hide in its coat around you. Woohoo! That is freaky. He goes on, So, anyway, thank you for everything you've done and continue doing. Uh, your service hasn't gone unnoticed. I'm also glad to hear that your health has improved and wish you the best. Thank you, Levi. And, uh... <laughs> Thank you. I I feel great, Levi. I had the shingles back a while ago, and uh, I'm fine now. I feel great, but thank you. Now, for tales, I have a few, but dreams, not as many. I have one in particular that no matter who I've told it to, a skeptic or believer in more colorful aspects of life have regarded as strange and unnerving. I still think about it on occasion. I was 16 then, I believe, and living in northwest Ohio. I was having trouble sleeping at the time, and I stayed up until about 11 o'clock before heading to bed. I laid there, not being able to sleep, and intermittently checking my alarm clock until it was just about 10 minutes prior to midnight. Around that time, I must have passed out, but never realized I had, and never realized I was in a dream. It was a black, formless space, and I was there with two figures in front of me. One of them was a recent girlfriend, Mallory. She seemed absent, and I got a strange sense about her, as though this was just a stand-in. And this wasn't really her. The other was a man, tall, lean, and pale. He had dark curtains of hair sitting right above his shoulders. His face with a sharp nose and longer jawline was framed by them. He was wearing vague clothing, nothing I can specifically remember except that it was all black as well. I didn't know this man, and he didn't introduce himself. I didn't perceive anything inherently bad about him at first. It was strange. Many dreams you have the sense that you are there, but not autonomous, as though on a ride of some sort with something steering you. This was not the case this time, and I felt very aware and able to move and speak as I often do. The man smiled and spoke to me, asking things of, like, how was the swim season going, and how is school going? Engaged and curious. He would often turn to Mallory and tell her, oh, that's good, huh? Or another affirmation and nod. She would smile and nod, but that was it. Nothing more. It felt odd. This went on for what felt like 20 to 30 minutes, the comments and talks, both mundane and at times oddly nonsensical. He once asked how my legs felt after shaving for swim season and approving of their smoothness. None of this made sense to me, and again, none of it felt like a dream. I had a feeling that this man was just as prescient and there and real as me this exchange finally wrapped up feeling like around a half an hour like i said the man then looked at me and put his hand out in offering for me to shake i just looked at him and then he glanced at me and at his hand and then back to me as if motioning i don't know why i did it but i did and as soon as i did became discomforted this grew into dread quickly as I realized he wasn't letting go and I couldn't get out of his grasp or even barely move. Throughout all of this he began smiling, a big, long smile sitting under his dark eyes, all in contrast with that pale face. Eventually I noticed his eyes just weren't just dark, they appeared black, and I became panicked in my frozenness. I woke up after this, lying on my side and facing the wall. I was disconcerted and in a haze. Coming out of this experience that I still didn't realize was a dream. I immediately tried to get up and turn my light on, but I realized I was frozen and still couldn't move. I tried and tried and couldn't even make a noise. This stretched on and all the senses I felt earlier had only intensified, and I was truly afraid. Eventually I felt as though someone was watching me, and though I couldn't see anything, I heard what sounded to be my clothes rustling in my closet and disposable bags blowing about the room. Just a lot of moving in general. I didn't know what to do, and any sense of time was hard to determine at this point. Eventually, I realized I could move my body, and I could no longer hear any noises about as I had. I had tucked myself under my sheets and was afraid to move out from underneath them, but eventually pulled them off quickly to grab my phone off the headboard and check the time. It was 12.05. This had all happened in a period of 10 to 15 minutes, and my brain just couldn't compute this at first. I wanted to tell anyone, just talk to someone. But I also felt crazy for being terrified from a dream at 16. So I put the whole thing in my phone notes and sent a text to my girlfriend at the time of the whole thing. I still didn't want to wake anyone over this. I felt irrational. It took me a few hours to get back to sleep. I told my mom the next morning, a huge skeptic of any ghost or tall family tales, I could tell it bothered her as well. I told her I felt crazy spilling it out to her, how it didn't feel like a dream, and how he felt real, but she assured me I wasn't. Anyway, that's my dream, the most frightening one I've ever had, one of the most frightening experiences I've ever had, actually. I figured I would send it your way I haven't told many people this. I wish you the best, and again, thank you. Best regards, Levi. Well, thank you, Levi. What a story. Oh, my goodness. that uh, That is creepy. Very scary. And you can send in your scaries or just your your nightmares or just any weird thing that happened to you. It doesn't have to be a nightmare. Send it to dream at gmail.com. And now for our feature story. In this story, a man finds himself 50 years into the future and finds a letter for him that was written by him, leaving him with a disturbing decision to make. I hope you enjoy Hall of Mirrors by Frederick Brown. It's a tough decision to make whether to give up your wife so that you can live it all over again. For an instant, you think it's temporary blindness, this sudden dark that comes in the middle of a bright afternoon. It must be blindness, you think. Could the sun that was tanning you have gone out instantaneously, leaving you in utter blackness? The nerves of your body tell you, you are standing, whereas only a second ago you were sitting comfortably, almost reclining in a canvas chair, in the patio of a friend's house in Beverly Hills, talking to Barbara, your fiance, looking at Barbara, Barbara in a swimsuit, her skin golden tan in the brilliant sunshine. Beautiful. You wore swimming trunks. Now you do not feel them on you. The slight pressure of the elastic waistband is no longer there against your waist. You touch your hands to your hips. You are naked and standing. Whatever has happened to you is more than a change to sudden darkness or to sudden blindness. You raise your hands gropingly before you. They touch a plain, smooth surface, a wall. You spread them apart and each hand reaches a corner. You pivot slowly. A second wall, then a third, then a door. You are in a closet about four feet square. Your hand finds the knob of the door. It turns and you push the door open. There is light now. The door has opened to a lighted room a room that you have never seen before. It is not large, but it is pleasantly furnished, although the furniture is of a style that is strange to you. Modesty makes you open the door cautiously the rest of the way, but the room is empty of people. You step into the room, turning to look behind you into the closet, which is now illuminated by the light from the room. The closet is and is not a closet. It is the size and shape of one, but it contains nothing, not a single hook, no rod for hanging clothes, no shelf. It's an empty, blank-walled, four-by-four-foot space. You close the door to it and stand looking around the room. It is about twelve by sixteen feet. There is one door, but it is closed. There are no windows. Five pieces of furniture, four of them you recognize, more or less. One looks like a very functional desk. One is obviously a chair, a comfortable looking one. There is a table, although its top is on several levels instead of only one. Another is a bed or a couch. Something shimmering is lying across it and you walk over and pick the shimmering something up and examine it. It is a garment. You are naked, so you put it on. Slippers are part way under the bed or couch and you slide your feet into them. They fit and they feel warm and comfortable as nothing you have ever worn on your feet have felt. Like lamb's wool, but softer. You are dressed now. You look at the door, the only door of the room except that of the closet. Closet? From which you entered it. You walk to the door and before you try the knob you see the small typewritten sign pasted just above it that reads, This door has a time lock set to open in one hour. For reasons you will soon understand, it is better that you do not leave this room before then. There is a letter for you on the desk. Please read it. It is not signed. You look at the desk and see that there is an envelope lying on it. You do not yet go to take that envelope from the desk and read the letter that must be in it. Why not? Because you are frightened. You see other things about the room. The lighting has no source that you can discover. It comes from nowhere. It is not indirect lighting. The ceiling and the walls are not reflecting it at all. They didn't have lighting like that back where you came from. What did you mean by back where you came from? You close your eyes. You tell yourself, I'm Norman Hastings. I'm an associate professor of mathematics at the University of Southern California. I'm 25 years old, and this is the year 1954. You open your eyes and look again. They didn't use that style of furniture in Los Angeles or anywhere else that you know of in 1954. That thing over in the corner, you can't even guess what it is. So might your grandfather at your age have looked at a television set. You look down at yourself, at the shimmering garment. "'that you found waiting for you. "'With thumb and forefinger, you feel its texture. "'It's like nothing you've ever touched before. "'I am Norman Hastings. "'This is 1954. "'Suddenly you must know, and at once. "'You go to the desk and pick up the envelope "'that lies upon it. "'Your name is typed on the outside. "'Norman Hastings.' Your hands shake a little as you open it. Do you blame them? There are several pages, typewritten. Dear Norman, it starts. You quickly go to the end to look for a signature. It is unsigned. You turn back and start reading. Don't be afraid. There is nothing to fear, but much to explain. Much that you must understand before the time lock opens that door. Much that you must accept and obey. You have already guessed that you are in the future, in what to you seems to be the future. The clothes and the room must have told you that. I planned it that way, so that shock would not be too sudden, so you would realize it over the course of several minutes rather than read it here, and quite probably disbelieve what you read. The closet from which you just stepped is, as you have now realized, a time machine. From it you stepped into the world of 2004, the date April 7th, just 50 years from the time you last remember. You cannot return. I did this to you, and you may hate me for it. I do not know. This is up to you to decide, but it does not matter. What does matter, and not to you alone is another decision which you must make. I am incapable of making it. Who is writing this to you? I would rather not tell you just yet. By the time you have finished reading this, even though it is not signed, for I knew you would look first for a signature, I will not need to tell you who I am. You will know. I am 75 years of age. I have in this year, 2004, been studying time for 30 of those years. I have completed the first time machine ever built, and thus far its construction, even the fact that it has been constructed, is my own secret. You have just participated in the first major experiment. It will be your responsibility to decide whether there shall ever be any more experiments with it whether it should be given to the world or whether it should be destroyed and never used again. End of First Page You look up for a moment, hesitating to turn the next page. Already you suspect what is coming. You turn the page. I constructed the first time machine a week ago. My calculations told me that it would work, but not how it would work. I had expected it to send an object back in time. It only works backward in time, not forward, physically unchanged and intact. My first experiment showed me my error. I placed a cube of metal in the machine. It was a miniature of the one you just walked out of and set the machine to go back 10 years. I flicked the switch and opened the door expecting to find the cube vanished. Instead, I found it had crumbled to powder. I put in another cube and sent it two years back. The second cube came back unchanged, except that it was newer and shinier. That gave me the answer. I had been expecting the cubes to go back in time, and they had done so but not in the sense that I had expected them to. Those metal cubes had been fabricated about three years previously. I had sent the first one back years before it had existed in its fabricated form. Ten years ago, it had been ore. The machine returned it to that state. Do you see how our previous theories of time travel have been wrong? We expected to be able to step into the time machine in, say, 2004, set it for 50 years back, and then step out in the year 1954. But it does not work that way. The machine does not move in time. Only whatever is within the machine is affected, and then just with relation to itself and not to the rest of the universe. I confirmed this with guinea pigs by sending one six weeks old, five weeks back, and it came out a baby. I need not outline all my experiments here. You will find a record of them in the desk, and you can study it later. Do you understand now what has happened to you, Norman? You begin to understand, and you begin to sweat. The I who wrote that letter you are now reading is you, yourself, at the age of 75, in this year of 2004. You are that 75-year-old man with your body returned to what it had been 50 years ago, with all the memories of 50 years of living wiped out. You invented the time machine. And before you used it on yourself, You made these arrangements to help you orient yourself. You wrote yourself the letter which you are now reading. But if those 50 years are to you gone, what of all your friends, those you loved? What of your parents? What of the girl you are going, were going to marry? You read on. Yes, you will want to know what happened. Mom died in 1963, dad in 1968, you married Barbara in 1956. I'm sorry to tell you that she died only three years later in a plane crash. You have one son. He is still living. His name is Walter. He is now 46 years old and is an accountant in Kansas City. Tears come to your eyes and for a moment you can no longer read, Barbara, dead, dead for 45 years. And only minutes ago, in subjective time, you were sitting next to her, sitting in the bright sun in a Beverly Hills patio. You force yourself to read again, but back to the discovery. You begin to see some of its implications. You will need time to think to see all of them, It does not permit time travel as we have thought of time travel, but it gives us immortality of a sort, immortality of the kind I have temporarily given us. Is it good? Is it worthwhile to lose the memory of 50 years of one's life in order to return one's body to relative youth? The only way I can find out is to try, as soon as I have finished writing this and made my other preparations you will know the answer. But before you decide, remember that there is another problem, more important than the psychological one. I mean overpopulation. If our discovery is given to the world, if all who are old or dying could make themselves young again, the population would almost double every generation. Nor would the world, not even our own relatively enlightened country, be willing to accept compulsory birth control as a solution. Give this to the world as the world is today in 2004, and within a generation there will be famine, suffering, war, perhaps a complete collapse of civilization. Yes, we have reached other planets, but they are not suitable for colonizing. The stars may be our answer, but we are a long way from reaching them. When we do, someday, the billions of habitable planets that must be out there will be our answer, our living room. But until then, what is the answer? Destroy the machine? But think of the countless lives it can save, the suffering it can prevent, Think of what it would mean to a man dying of cancer. Think, think, you finish the letter and put it down. You think of Barbara dead for 45 years and of the fact that you were married to her for three years and those years are lost to you, 50 years lost. You damn the old man of 75 whom you became and who has done this to you, who has given you this decision to make. Bitterly you know what the decision must be. You think he knew too, and realized that he could safely leave it in your hands. Damn him, he should have known. Too valuable to destroy, too dangerous to give. The answer is painfully obvious. You must be custodian of this discovery, and keep it secret until it is safe to give until mankind has expanded to the stars and has new worlds to populate, or until even without that he has reached a state of civilization where he can avoid overpopulation by rationing birth to the number of accidental or voluntary deaths. If neither of those things has happened in another fifty years, and are they likely so soon, then you— At 75, we'll be writing another letter like this one. You will be undergoing another experience similar to the one you're going through now and making the same decision, of course. Why not? You'll be the same person again, time and again, to preserve this secret until man is ready for it. How often will you again sit at a desk like this one, thinking the thoughts you are thinking now, feeling the grief you now feel. There is a click at the door, and you know that the time lock has opened, that you are now free to leave this room, free to start a new life for yourself in place of the one you have already lived and lost. But you are in no hurry now to walk directly through that door. You sit there, staring straight ahead of you blindly, seeing in your mind's eye the vista of a set of facing mirrors, like those in an old-fashioned barbershop, reflecting the same thing over and over again, diminishing into far distance. You've been listening to Hall of Mirrors by Frederick Brown. Albert Einstein once said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. I want to thank Levi for sending in his nightmare. I've enjoyed being with you, but now I must go. I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me.